University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. So there's this new game called Wordle. It started in November of 2021 with 90 users and now has over 4 million players today. Uh, The point of the game is to guess a five-letter word in six tries or less. And as you guess the word, correct letters are highlighted, allowing you to have a better chance at your next guess. But get this, it's the same word for everyone across the world every single day. And you can only play it once per day. And it's gotten so big that on social media platforms, they have blocked users for posting spoilers of the word of the day. So meaning, if I posted that today's word is panic, which it's not, the social media, I, w- I would be so scared social media titans would close down our live stream immediately for me giving that word. They, they will remove your post and give a warning to you against posting similar spoilers in the futures. So uh, spoilers and, and boasts about getting the word right have caused, apparently, major drama among groups of friends and families. And some people have become so addicted to this game that they're focusing, uh, they're asking themselves to delete the app from their phone altogether and asking their friends not to even talk to them about the game itself. Wordle is eventually going to join the likes of Words with Friends, Candy Crush, Angry Birds, Sudoku, Solitaire, and the Daily Crossword Puzzle, and the simple games that ignite that part of our brain that controls addiction. Sometimes, don't you wish you could just be done with something in your life? The Christian season recognizes a period in the calendar in which we do this. We're done with some things. We're in the season called Lent, not to be confused with that stuff that gets in my belly button every once in a while or in your dryer container. But the season of Lent commemorates this 40-day journey of Jesus from to Jerusalem, his subsequent uh, his arrest and torture and execution. Lent is supposed to be a time of fasting and reflecting and repentance. Modeled after the 40 days of Jesus fasting in the wilderness, Christians are invited to uh, intensify fasting, depending more on prayer. However, in our more modern times, we've chosen this to be a season in which we give up something for 40 days as a simple sacrifice to honor the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And while giving up short periods of time can be meaningful to our spiritual formation, what's fascinating is that the invitation of Jesus is to something much more radical— There's a phrase that Jesus uses that appears throughout the gospel in which he says you must give up your life in order to save it. But what does that mean? What does Jesus mean you must give up your life in order to save it? We're entering into this new series, Done, while giving up our life saves it. And we're examining the critical teachings of Jesus in order to better understand exactly what Jesus is calling us to be done with in order to save our lives. This morning, we're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for accusing him. Jesus interacts more and more with the Pharisees than any other of the other two religious groups within the New Testament, the Essenes and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were not priests or rulers of the temple. They were actually kind of lay or common persons. And they believed and pursued the law given to Moses with fiery zeal. They thought if, if we and the people around us would live up to what the law calls us to, then God would show God's favor and restore Israel back to its former glory. And so they lived by every letter of the law and zealously pursued and persuaded others to do so. And because they took the law of Moses very serious, they rounded up what might be called the town whore and brought, her in front, brought him in front of Jesus. And in the law of Moses, there, there are some exciting books in, in the Old Testament that, which gives us a laundry list of all the rules and regulations and punishments. According to De- uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, contains the most scriptures that's referred to as the law of Moses. It's simply a, a, a commentary, an expansion of those ten commandments given to Moses. And then there's that commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. And just in case the Hebrew people didn't get that commandment down right, Deuteronomy 22, 22 states, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge this evil from Israel. This repeats again in Leviticus 20, 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22, Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. In fact, all of these passages give specific instructions to the people about how they should stone these people to death. So here's the good news for the Pharisees in our story. They're right. That's right. You heard correctly. Let's stone this woman to death. It's what Uncle Moses would want from us to do, right? The Pharisees love the law of Moses. They believe that following them to perfection would rid Israel of the Romans and their puppet ruler Herod. Therefore, they followed them with zealous perfection and demanded that others do the same. And as much as things change, they really do stay the same. Replace the Pharisees with fill-in-the-blank religious group or political or social groups today, and you find that there are people who love the Bible so much that they're willing to do anything to see it enforced on others. And please don't misunderstand me. I love the Bible. The scripture gives me life. The scriptures shape and inform the way that I live. However, when placed in the hands of people who believe they are right, the Bible can be dangerous. It may cause them to gather stones to throw them at the town whore. It may cause them to ostracize the sick. It may cause them to tell barren parents that their sin has brought shame upon their house and therefore God is not giving them children. It may cause them to convict and execute a heretic who is claiming to be the son of God. Think I'm a bit extreme. How about a few unfortunate examples from Christian history? Did you know that in the 19th century, southern plantation owners funded the development of a new Bible? You might be thinking, wonderful except it was called the slave Bible. Good Christian people had the Bible crafted 
in which it omitted the Old Testament and any of that tricky stuff about liberation, freedom, and equality. They even went as far as removing that really tricky stuff in which Paul declares that in Christ there is no slave nor free, male nor female, Jew or Gentile, for we are all one in Christ because white plantation owners didn't want their slaves to get the ideas that they were on the same equal level as they were. Right religious people using the Bible as a weapon has justified subjugation and unequal rights of others. Right religious people using the Bible as a weapon can become the judge, jury, and executioner of a society in which they deem to be sinful and abhorrent. But what's at the heart of all this? I don't believe to truly be Christian is to truly be a self-righteous or judgy kind of person. After all, Jesus spent his entire ministry combating against religious rightness. And if you don't believe me, just open the first six or seven chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and I dare to say you will be thinking otherwise. I would even go as far as saying that religion has nothing to do with the human desire of rightness. Because I think if you look at every single moment in human history and the unthinkable acts of, quote, religious people that have justified their acts of violence and mutilation and apathy and subjugation, and at their core, religion was just a facade for something else. At the root of rightness is the feelings of superiority. Most of us, if we're honest, know that we don't like being wrong. We want to be right about our opinions, our perspectives, our beliefs, and deeply held cognitive biases. I'm sure if my wife came up here, she would say, no, complete opposite with Andy. He does not ever desire to be right about anything. Watch every politician that's ever explained something away with the most abhorrent, awful tactics to justify and misdirect from the things they've done. And we might chuckle at these things, but how much do we, how, how comfortable are we with the notion of wrongness in our life? You see, rightness is a cognitive social mechanism that makes us feel better about who we are, but more importantly, who we are not. Society in all shapes and sizes and people groups have identified those people that we believe to be wrong or sinful or gross or disgusting or uncultured or whatever adjective you want to throw in there. Society has always found a way to find the other, the person or the group that are not like us. So take the Pharisees, for example. The ones that are trying to stone this woman in front of Jesus, they believe that they are better off because of their religious perfection of the law of Moses, and that they could just be as right as they could be to stone this woman, to put her in her place, and maybe God would do the right thing and bring about the redemption of Israel. Imagine how rightness fills our brains and our minds. Superiority is often expressed in entitlement perfect or holier-thou attitude, persistent rightness with no apologies forthcoming, condescension, an inability to listen but a hyperability to talk above. It's a, it's a higher way, I'm better than you mentality. Do you remember that great Dr. Seuss story uh, about the Sneetches? Anybody remember this story? There were, of course, the Starbelly Sneetches and the Plainbelly Sneetches. The Starbelly Sneetches thought they were the best, and they looked down upon the Sneetches that didn't have a star on their belly. And the Plain Belly Sneetches 
remained depressed and oppressed. You wouldn't think, because they lacked a star on their plain Sneetch's belly, that they wouldn't think anything of it. But the star belly Sneetch's would snoot and snort, having nothing to do with the plain belly sort. They even taught their children to walk past the plain belly Sneetch's with their snoots in the air and snort, not even letting the plain belly Sneetch's play ball with them. And so year after year, the plain belly Sneetch's got snubbed and snooted, even having their bottoms getting booted. The root of rightness isn't just the feelings of superiority. It has a lot to do with the unseen and sometimes known feelings of inferiority. And more often than not, our beliefs of superiority really boil down to covering up our same sense of inferiority in our lives, whether it's our appearance or our experience or our education, station of life, level of influence or proximity to power. Many of us if not all of us, feel inferior in some aspect of our life. And rather than dealing with those inferiorities, we mask them by highlighting and amplifying and objectifying and discriminating against the other. We develop this as social species. Our brains spend considerable energy constantly estimating our social standings. We want to present our best selves to others, so that we can possibly be in the best social standing. And this helps secure our plan in our community and secure the best possible mate. And this is what our forebears did as they gathered in tribes and sought the best for survival. So take the Pharisees, for example. The guys trying to stone this woman to death. They trapped Jesus in this heretical statement. They were hoping they could eventually stone Jesus as a result of it. Another encounter with Jesus, we, we see that Jesus is... Uh, is letting someone else wash his feet, a dirty woman in town. And they look down upon her because of her lack of cleanness and her lack of perfection. Except accepting our messiness as a part of being human, we attempt to cover it up and amplify the messiness of others. And socially speaking, this is an emotional mechanism to protect ourselves, believing that if we join the crowd that's rejecting others, then we won't be rejected ourselves. As one psychologist noted, that thinking you're better than other people is a good way for your ego to defend itself. Often this leads us to believe in some of these statements, it's not me, it's them. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm the victim of other people's messed up valued systems. Back to the Sneetches. One day, the lot of the Plain Belly Sneetches would change for who came into town was Sylvester McMonkey McBean, who had a star on and star off machine. So he begins to give the, the stars to the plain belly Sneetches, who were soon happy, for they looked like their entitled, entitled counterparts. Except the original star belly Sneetches are angry, and they no longer wanted to be different and special. So they had Sylvester remove the stars from their belly. Then this continues back and forth until no one can remember which Sneetch originally had what. You see, it's not just the feelings of superior and inferiority that cause people to live in self-rightness, but most importantly, it's fear of the unknown and unfamiliar. As one person put it, we don't, what we don't understand, we fear. What we fear, we judge as evil. What we judge as evil, we attempt to control. And what we can't control, 
we attack. See, within our society are endless examples of fearing the unknown. The left is afraid of the right. The right is afraid of the left. The working class is fear of the corporations and back and forth. Technologies, challenges are, are afraid of, of, we're new afraid of new advancements. Religious people are afraid of other religions or other people that fit outside of their religion. The list goes on and on and on. As one psychologist found, in just hours, we can be conditioned to fear or discriminate against those who differ from ourselves by characteristics as superficial as eye color. Even ideas we believe are just as common sense can have a deep xenophobic underpinning. There's some research conducted by Harvard uh, that reveals that even among people who claim to have non-biases in their life, the more strongly they support ethnic profiling against certain people groups. For example, Middle Eastern persons at airport security checkpoints, the more hidden prejudice it is about people who are Muslim. See, fear is a heavy-handed motivator in our world. It dominates our news. A narrative pushed on us is constantly on us to keep the tone of our fear. Fear drives us to think uh, by, by the way that we think about others, by the way that we think about ourselves, fear is driven in our public narrative. So with all this in mind, Jesus is presented with this woman in front of him, and look what happens in verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, being the good psychologist and sociologist that he is, speaking directly to the Pharisees' superiority complex, their inferiority, and their fears. But he didn't do it with a calamitous and fiery speech of condemnation and judgment. No, Jesus' humility reshapes the situation. This story personifies who Jesus is, plain and simple. When given the opportunity to use the word of God to condemn this woman and to take her life, the literal law of Moses given to the people from God, Jesus chose something different. Let that sink in for just a second. This woman literally had a horde of religious laws going against her. And yet Jesus chose a greater law, the law of love. You see, love has the power to drive down to the root of our intentions. In the face of Jesus' love, these religious leaders caved to their convictions, their judgment, and their plans. One by one, they dropped their stones, realizing their immense guilt against the law, and recognized the forgiveness that God had bestowed upon them. And Jesus shows us the personification of humility in this story. 
His reaction to the Pharisees living in the embodiment of the word word from Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Jesus could have matched judgment with judgment, condemnation with condemnation, biting words against biting words. But instead, Jesus chose to even show a gentle reaction to these religious self-righteous men. Earlier on in John's gospel, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We usually stop right there, but he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. And the reality is that if it was good enough for Jesus, then it should be good enough for us. And if Jesus lived out humility, we should embody humility. A life in Jesus is one of humility, not superiority. Too often, humility is viewed as weakness or submissiveness, yet Jesus shows us the profound transformative power of responding to hatred with love, condemnation with inclusiveness, discord with unity, aggression with meekness. And as we look back over the ministry of Jesus, how often did his humility transform the moment and transform lives? The crowd that had hostility towards Zacchaeus, the Pharisees that rejected Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, the religious leaders at horror over him healing people on the Sabbath, the disciples turning away children that Jesus wanted to bless. When faced with combative argument among his disciples as to who would sit next to him in the coming glory, Jesus told his disciples that he who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God would be the one who chooses to serve. Jesus told his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as an offering for the world. What about when Jesus taught us, do not judge or you too will be judged? For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. In the same way you measure others, you will be measured yourself. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? In this moment of supreme religious rightness, Jesus chose grace and humility over religious rightness and judgment and superiority. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, when he writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with faith of God that has been distributed to each of you. And as if this wasn't emphatically clear from his interaction with the Pharisees and this woman, Jesus stamps his call to humility on his disciples in verse 12 when he says, he came to be light, not religiously arrogant darkness, wielding stones and condemnation. Humility is recognizing our place in the universe that while we are beloved children of God, we're not the only child of God. Jesus calls us to to take on our passions and our strengths and assets and experience and wisdom and use them not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of the world. Humility is also about admitting our shortcomings and seeking to overcome them. 
It's about a readiness to learn the best practices that can benefit others. Humility involves teachability and the mindset of embracing constant self-correction and self-improvement. And there are some practical ways that we can practice humility each day. Consider a few of these things. We're not always right. And we don't have to be the person that has all the answers all the time. When having a conversation with others, it's only natural to want to speak about our own life, our own views, our own rightness. However, what happened if we didn't make the conversation always about us? Taking the time to listen to others, not with the intent to respond or rebut, but listening to what's going on in people's lives and listening to what's happening behind their words. See feedback from others, especially when you know you're right. Always be polite. We'll have situations in which people are going to be unruly and unkind to us. And unfortunately, people can be rude and can provoke something within us. But like Jesus in our text, it takes great power to choose radical kindness and justice. Find the goodness in others, especially those that are radically different from you. People will make mistakes. Sometimes it's hard to ignore the choices of others because it helps us ignore and validate our own mistakes. But we've all made mistakes that have either affected ourselves or others in our lives, and there's no reason or sense of judgment for someone else's mistake. Again, what did Jesus say? Whoever of you has not sinned, be the first to cast the stone. What about backing down from useless fights? Arguments that happen between friends and loved ones. It's, it's a natural life. To practice humility is to back down from a fight even when you know you're right in the fight. What Jesus teaches us through this moment, what the three years in Jesus' ministry shows us, is that humility emboldens others to experience the radical presence of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the incarnation of the living God. Each person that Jesus touched, healed, and served was transformed. They became the best person they could be because through God's love, they were empowered by God's presence among them. And when you and I are on the, the nature, uh, choosing the natural path of Jesus, becoming humble servants, we too are bringing people before Jesus. When we choose to show kindness in the midst of frustration, we are emboldening others to experience the radical presence of God. When we're when we're uh, trying always not to be right in all situations and prove other people wrong, all of a sudden the truth of God can be spoken through just mere presence in our life. When we look beyond the easy in order to serve others and to seek to systematically change the discomfort of others by being the humble, radical presence of Christ, things happen in our world. When we do not wait for opportunities to come to us, but proactively seek out to care for others, emboldening others, especially others that are not like us, God's presence is made known. So may we come to see that Jesus is calling us to give up superiority. Not for 40 days, but for a lifetime. May we come to believe and follow in Jesus the path that loses our life in order to save it. For our time of reflection this morning, we're going to invite you to turn to your neighbor and to have a a brief conversation. We call this sharing the journey. And there's two questions we want you to contemplate this morning. The first question is, 
How is God speaking to me through the text this morning? The second question is, talk about a practice of humility this week in a world that you can put into practice, in a world that makes you feel like you should be superior all the time. Let me repeat those. Talk about how God is speaking to you from the text. And second, talk about ways you can practice humility this week in a world that pushes us into feelings of superiority towards others. Take a few moments and engage in conversations together.